not so far from me. So this morning we are in our second part of our series, uh, Being Disciples. And in this series, we're just looking at what it means to be spiritual. Because if you remember last week, we said a lot of people will be very comfortable saying they're spiritual, and they often make that distinction between religion and spirituality. Um, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, right? When was the last time you heard someone say, oh, I'm really religious, I'm really, really, I love organized religion, it's my favorite thing. No one says that, but they do say, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual. So we're asking, what does it mean? to be spiritual? What might it mean for us to grow spiritually and, and, and attain what we might call spiritual maturity? And we're asking that question in the context of those very famous stories where Jesus calls his first disciples. And, and you know the story where Jesus appears that was just read to us by Caleb very well, where Jesus appears and says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they drop their nets and they leave their boats and they leave their fathers and they follow him. And, and then those, that, that moment where Jesus goes up the mountainside and he says, uh, he calls his disciples to him, and he points 12 of them, some of them unpronounceable names, aren't they, Caleb? So, so, so calls 12 of them and appoints them to be uh, the 12 apostles. And we might think, well, Stephen, that Jesus hasn't done anything yet. Jesus hasn't said anything yet. Surely what we need to do is watch the three years of his ministry unfold. We have to watch the three years of them being together uh, unfold before our eyes so that we can listen to the Sermon on the Mount and we can hear the parables and we can watch the miracles. And then, and then we might be able to surmise something about what Jesus thought about spirituality. But I'm claiming that there's something about these short stories, these very brief encounters that actually discloses a lot about what Jesus thinks about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity and, and, and what it means to be a spiritual person. Um, so what we're going to do, as I said last week, we're re reading these stories slowly. Uh, we're reading them very slowly, and we're going to notice certain details and ask certain questions, and we'll, we'll see, what, see what happens. So to go back to that question, what does it mean to grow spiritually and reach, attain spiritual maturity. Um, if you read the Bible, and it doesn't really matter whether you're reading the Old Testament or you're reading the New Testament, it doesn't matter. What you'll find is that attaining knowledge seems to always be connected to growth and maturity, right? attaining more knowledge. Um, and so I'm just going to give you a few examples of this. If you, I haven't got the clicker down here, but if you could put them up. Uh, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The heart of him who is understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
So this is just a very small sampling, actually, of the places in the Bible, Old and New Testament, where knowledge is mentioned in this all-important all important way. But even from this small smattering, we, we can see that knowledge, we learn something about the way knowledge is associated. It's associated with understanding and wisdom. It's associated with avoiding stupidity and, and foolishness. And it's even associated with avoiding our own demise and our own destruction. I, I think of um, the, you know, the Darwin Awards. Have you seen those? And, and, and the collection of stories of people who've died from their own stupidity. Um, and, and, and it's associated with that kind of knowledge that could even save your, your life. Uh, and, and so God wants his people to be filled with knowledge. And, and Paul, in fact, prays. And there's a couple of examples we just saw of Paul praying for the church to be filled with the knowledge of God. I don't know about you, but I've often thought of knowledge in terms of uh, gaining and garnering more information. And, and better still, when, when that information is downloaded into my brain uh, with as much cool, detached uh, objectivity as possible, cool, detached objectivity, more information. So I might learn it in a classroom, or I might read it in a book, and then I can translate it into my own notes and, and condense it in, into lists complete with bullet points, and, um, and then I can distill it and organize it and schematize it. So what I did when I first became a Christian, here's what I did, is I went out and I got a ton of books. And I read those books, and then I went out and got more books about Jesus and God and Christianity and theology and church, and, and I read those books, and I devoured them, right? It was all new to me. It was all new to me, and I just devoured them. Um, and I, I always remember a friend of mine, he was an avowed atheist, and he came over, and he looked at this growing shelf of books, and he looked at me, and he looked back at the books, and he looked back at me, and he said, Stephen, you've gone crazy. <laughs> this is the same friend who I hounded him. I, I really, uh, you know, a real pain in the neck um, when it came to my newfound faith. So I really uh, hounded him, which is what you do to good friends, right? Uh, and I always remember him turning around and saying, Stephen, Stephen, why dost thou persecute me? <laughs> uh, but, but this was just reassuring to me that I was on the right track. He wasn't interested in spiritual growth and Christian spirituality, but I was, and so this was how I was going to grow spiritually. He thinks it's crazy, so I must be doing the right thing. But there's actually something in Jesus' calling of his first disciples which should have completely interrupted all of that. It should have interrupted my entire approach to knowledge, and, and, and not just my approach, but the typically Western approach uh, to acquiring knowledge. Because here's what it says. It says that Jesus came to his disciples and he said, come and follow me. Come and follow me. Early writing has described the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples. And it's, they say that the disciple must cover himself in the dust of the rabbi's feet. In other words, the disciple and we've talked about this before, the disciple will be following along so closely uh, that 
literally be walking in, in that dust. So you, if you're walking around the, 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 in the first century Palestine in, in, the, in, the, in the hot, dusty roads, right, and, and they're walking and they're kicking up dust and you're following so close behind them, by the end of the day, you are caked in, you are covered in that dust. And so they developed this, this interesting saying, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Of course, this literal experience of following that closely becomes a metaphor for knowledge and spiritual growth. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. But it's a much more holistic approach, isn't it? That says, you're going to watch your rabbi's every move. And you're going to pick up on his mannerisms. And you imitate his posture. And you, and you may have his way of walking. You, you, you'll see, you catch something of the intonation in the way that he talks and you'll find yourself sometimes talking the, 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 in the way he does with some of his mannerisms. But it won't stop there. It's not going to be a cheap imitation. Because beyond that, you'll get to know his patterns of thinking and you'll become familiar with this teacher's framing of life and events so that you start to see what he sees and you'll hear what he hears and you'll not only do what he does, but you'll know exactly why he's doing it. And you'll begin to treat people the way he treats people and you'll learn to love what he loves and you'll come to value what he values. In other words, you will internalize a whole entire way of being. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. You'll internalize a whole entire way of being. When Jesus says, come, follow me, it's an invitation. He's saying, come and internalize this entire way of being. Come and embody my particular existence. There's different ways of being human or attempting to be human. There's different ways of trying to be people, trying to be me and trying to be you. Well, there's different ways of going about that. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Come and embody my particular type of existence in this world. We saw last week that children ages 5 to 10 in the Bet Sefer, the house of the book, will attempt to memorize the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which is just, how do they do that? I don't know. And then, and then from ages 10 to 12, in Bet Talmud, the house of learning, they attempt to learn the commentaries and memorize the, the different oral commentaries, secondary literature on, on the Torah. But it's interesting. The more bookish learning, the memorization, the download of information is heavily weighted towards those early years and stages of education. In other words, it's reserved for the children. But then came Bet Midrash, and that is a stage of education, 12 on up, that moment when the rabbi says, come and follow me. This is hard for us to get into because the whole modern Western world, started, the modern philosophy, they say the father of modern philosophy is René Descartes, French guy, and he's thinking about existence, and, and he wants to come up with something he can't deny. And, and he's thinking and he's thinking. And he goes, I think, therefore I am. So his whole existence is summed up in his sort of intellectual life and his thoughts. Now, now the, the whole Jewish tradition would just balk at that. It would scoff at that. We're not just brains on sticks, right? We have bodies and, and we have flesh and we have blood and we have this embodied existence. Knowledge is tied to spiritual growth, yes but not to the modern Western approach of knowledge that attempts to condense the vastness of life 
into factoids and information we can get out of a book. I love what Nietzsche had to say about this bookish approach to life and knowledge. Here's, here's what he says. He says, I have slammed the door on the scholars, those blind guys. I have moved from the house of the scholars, and I even bang the door behind me. I am not like them, trained to pursue knowledge as if it were nut-cracking. I love that analogy, right? So we just get it out of a nut. I've got it now. Right. Uh, a world of truth, he says, that can be mastered completely and forever with the aid of our square little reason. What? Do we really want to permit existence to be degraded for us like this, reduced to a mere exercise for a calculator and an indoor diversion for mathematicians? Above all, one should not wish to divest existence of its rich ambiguity. That is a dictate of good taste. I don't know whether it's a dictate of taste, good taste or not, but, but here's the thing. Jesus doesn't see our existence uh, as nut knowledge as nutcracking. Jesus doesn't approach knowledge as, as if it were a, a body of uh, knowledge, um, information that could be mastered by a square little reason and worked out on a calculator and, and turned into an indoor diversion, an indoor activity. Jesus will not allow our life to be, uh, existence to be degraded like this. And so Jesus says, come. Follow me. And where do we follow him to? He went up the mountain and called to him those whom he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles to be with him, and to be sent out to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. I'm not going to read the rest because I don't think I can pronounce the name as well as you did, but... but We'll leave it there. But, there, but he, there is, there's quite a bit to look at in this passage. There's quite a bit to look at in this passage. We're going to come back to this next week and, and look at it and pack it in a little bit more detail. But this week, I just want to observe the fact that when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, he is simultaneously calling his disciples into community. In other words, if you hear Jesus calling you today, come and follow me, and he extends that invitation, as we said last week, to everybody, not just to the elite people who made the cut, not just to the thoroughbreds, right? He extends that invitation to all of us, and if we listen and we respond to that invitation to follow him, we will find ourselves automatically, simultaneously, in the context of a community. Now, of course, I could try and sell you this community the way I would try and sell you a condo or an apartment. Look at, look at the views of Central Park, right? And this, this place has every feature you could possibly want, this, this apartment. It, look at the kitchen. It's all beautifully refurbished. Don't, everything's shiny. Don't have the wood floors. And, you know, as they say, location, location, location. This, this is going to be expensive, right? I could try and sell it to you that way. But I don't think uh, I should do that. It wouldn't be very dishonest because it's not like finding friends on social media and presenting a nice sanitized version of yourself and keeping people at a distance. It's a lot messier and can be a lot clumsier and sometimes a lot more painful. Partly because this is not a community of our own choosing. But it's a community of his choosing. Jesus chooses his disciples. Jesus extends the invitation to his disciples. And they don't get to vote people in or out of the community. It's not you're, you're off the island or you can stay on the island. This is, not, this isn't, they don't get to do that. Right? 
they just find themselves answering this call to follow Jesus and alongside them, on either side, they find other people who so happen to have responded to that same invitation. Now, there, there is something really, really important about that fact, that God is the architect of this community. Every time a Christian community pops up, it, we are not the architects of this community. Jesus calls people together who would never have chosen to be together. We've talked about that before, but that this is so important. It, 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 it couldn't be any other way. It had to be that way. It couldn't be a nice, comfortable group chosen by Matthew, chosen by Simon. It couldn't be a group chosen by me or chosen by you because that would defeat the purpose, completely defeat the purpose because a community which is not of our making is where we acquire that knowledge, not knowledge out of a book, but it's in the context of a community, that knowledge that we need for spiritual growth. I'll say that once more. That the community which is not of our choosing, not of our making, of which we are not the architects, is the context in which we acquire the knowledge that is absolutely necessary for spiritual growth. It's not a solo endeavor of an individual, something we acquire off on our own, sitting in a cave, but something we acquire together by being together. It may seem a bit while we sit in rows on a Sunday morning, talking like this, right, in a classroomish type setting, teacher at the front, students in the seats, right? It might seem a little bit hypocritical, but we've got to remember that the life of this church, this community, is not, is not contained here on a Sunday morning, but it spills out into the rest of life. And I think yesterday was this wonderful example of that. I mean, one minute we're at Raff and Kerry's house and we're celebrating Kerry's birthday and we're cutting the cake and just. Did the bakers get that right? It was meant to be a blue, blue cake. Okay, so it was meant to be blue. Okay, you know, there was some question I know that was going around. Did they get it wrong? Um, so discovering that they're welcoming a baby boy into the world, and, and that, that was so exciting. And, and then the same crowd of people later on in the day end up uh, watching Jesse and Sarah Beth with the release of her new album and that was a wonderful party and, and, and concert and seeing that art coming out was beautiful um, and, and at the same time I know some people with, with much younger children, babies uh, were getting together in each other's homes and having dinner with each other while that was going on and, and then we had to rush home from the concert to greet some old Trinity Heights friends, Jenny Ingram and her, her new husband, because they're on the tail end of their honeymoon and they're stopping by and staying with us for a couple of nights. And, and so you, you've, you've got birthdays and babies and, and new albums being born and, and, and dinners and, and, and uh, honeymoons and life is happening. And, and that's the context. That's the place where we will learn to love each other. Look, it could be right now that you feel a little beaten up, tired, guilty, broken, angry, sad, and you're thinking, I don't have any love left in me, and I can't forgive, and I don't have any more to give. Well, it could be that what you need is to be on the receiving end of love, to experience forgiveness, and to receive someone else's generosity. And so Jesus invites us into community where there's the possibility to experience those things which will ignite your spiritual growth. Or it could be that we're simply out of practice. Love, forgiveness, generosity are all things that we need to practice. And so again, Jesus invites us into community where we can love 
and forgive and give from the bottom of our hearts. The truth is we need both, and usually at the same time. Right? We need to receive this. We need to be practicing this. How do we grow spiritually? We grow in knowledge. Knowledge gained by following Jesus into community. Not of our choosing, but of Christ's choosing. And as we saw last week, where everyone, including those who don't make the cut, are invited.